The Athletic. The summer break for MotoGP 2022 is in full swing. The sun is out, injuries are hopefully recovering, as well as miles being thrashed out on bicycles, just like the Tour de France stages for many a MotoGP rider during the summer. But here on The Race, we've got a podcast full of your questions that you have sent in from around the world. Simon Patterson, Valentin Harunchi, and myself, Toby Moody, here to try and answer those questions uh simon uh how are you ha- have you finished your van uh it's getting there it's now moving rapidly forward which is quite nice <laughs> that's the good thing uh just quickly what's the uh, favorite part of your season so far just a quick little question that i'm gonna throw in uh, the five week summer break. Okay, that's short. <laughs> it's been a long. It's been a long year. It's been a long year doing the uh, doing the test in Indonesia at the start of the season. Just set us up for a really long slog since then. So it's it's uh, yeah. It's been nice to switch off for a little bit. Val, how are you doing? I'm uh, pretty good. It's really really hot in here, but otherwise quite nice. All good. What's the best part of your season so far? Yeah, Simon stole my answer, <laughs> so I'm just going to say. Any MotoGP weekend that doesn't clash with F1, I guess, because <laughs> then the workload is just absurd. Do not uh, like it. I'll give a slightly less than a glancer and say that it's been awesome to see uh, Aprilia and Alicia Spagaro at the sharp end as well. It's been like, I appreciate a good underdog story and I don't think anyone saw that coming. So that's quite good. For me, it's being seeing uh, Quattararo on top of his game and being so far ahead, relatively speaking, and certainly so far ahead of all the other Yamaha riders and being in control. I just think he's he's absolutely on the top step at the moment and, and I'm enjoying watching somebody ply their trade cleverly, sensibly, particularly when he knows that he's not going to win on the day and he rides so well. That's uh, that's just my take. So, uh, so yeah. Okay, right. Well, we've got uh, 16 questions from around the world, literally. Uh, the first question is right here. Hello, this is Beverly from California originally, but I live in England. Uh, I have two questions, really. Um, the first one's regarding something that's just happened with Pekka Bignaya. I looked at the comments on your, on your um, website, and it, some people are calling for him to be fired. I just think... You know, those who live in glass houses and all that. I'm curious to think, what do you think the actual punishment should be for Pekka regarding what happened in Ibiza? And my second question is regarding Toprak. Seeing that there doesn't seem to be a space on the factory Yamaha team, what what are your opinions really on where he should go or should he even go into MotoGP at all? Um, I personally don't think if he went to a satellite Yamaha team, he would get the support as a, as if uh, if he was a Ducati rider in a, in a satellite team. And lastly, just want to say thank you, guys. Love your podcast. Toby, I remember seeing you and Julian Ryder way back when uh, when they used to go to Donington. And, um, and I follow you all. Uh, and you also, Simon, really appreciate your work. Thanks. Bye-bye. Uh, hi, Beverly. So in case any of the listeners haven't haven't heard uh Pekka was in an automotive crash during his holiday and he was found to have a blood alcohol level above that permitted so he was uh, driving under the influence and he has apologized for that and it is not clear where this situation will go from here in terms of glass houses I should preface this by saying that I'm not 
trying to be like holier than thou or preachy or whatever. And I, I should make a disclaimer, the football team I support really, really, like really support uh, has for several seasons now employed a player who a decade ago was driving under the influence and was in a in a crash that turned out fatal for, for his passenger. And that player is probably leaving in, in this offseason, but that doesn't change the fact that I've, I've certainly cheered his goals and his assists and his contributions these all these years. So, you know, part of that's just blinkers, you know, being a blinkered fan, I guess. But part of that is it's not something I consider irredeemable, that kind of mistake. And it's, you know, if you're a young person and you, it's a terrible mistake, but you, you shouldn't be discarded forever, I guess. So more specifically about Peko, do I think Peko should lose his ride? No. My, what I tweeted was, I thought it was a bare minimum, a multi-race suspension issued either by Ducati or by the series. I don't really care who, who takes it into their own hands because it was a, obviously it was a very, very serious error of judgment by somebody who is by the very nature of their employment, a public facing persona. Like, let's not even, everybody says role model, which then gives you the response of, well, he never asked to be a role model. Yeah, that's true. But he is, you know, he's a public facing persona. He's an example. And how this kind of infringement is dealt with is an example to people around the world. And what disturbed me the most is the amount of replies on various threads on Twitter where people have gone about saying in various ways, well, who amongst us, who hasn't done the same? You know, I bet all of you who are criticizing him have also driven buzzed, to which I'd like to make it extremely clear. No, 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 no. Most people do not do this and most people should not do this. And it should be extremely clear to the world at large that this is not something that that can be done. Absolutely. There are so many road deaths in the world and in various countries from 15 to 30 percent, maybe more of those deaths are deaths that involve somebody driving under the influence. The car is a weapon. We as human beings were not meant to be moving this fast. We were not designed to be moving this fast. We are fragile and we die when there's a collision and driving under the influence makes that collision so much more likely. And I know that it is inconvenient to have a designated driver and, and not drink, but it is also inconvenient for the attending officer at the scene of a traffic incident to call somebody's family and tell them that, you know, their loved one is gone. So I want to see a punishment because this is, and I now more want to see a punishment because of some of the responses I've seen, because I think there is a, a lack of understanding of how, how serious this is. It, it is not a minor thing. I do not think Peko is, you know, should be discarded or beyond redemption or whatever. I do not think he should lose his ride, but this is not nothing. It is not nothing. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, at the end of the day, he is the leading public representative of a company that sells vehicles for a living. That That's what motorbike racers are at the end of the day. They're, they're PR representatives for companies. And his is not a football team. His is one that sells things that lets people go very fast. So there should be a sanction. And to be perfectly honest, um, I was kind of assuming that there would be and what has happened in the, the sort of the week since the incident has convinced me even more now that, that the FIM, MotoGP's governing body, needs to step in and do something. Because it's it's I think it's apparent that Ducati aren't interested in doing anything, um, which is insane to me. Um, but I also think that, to be perfectly honest, Bagnaia's apology has been at best half-hearted. 
the fact that it's already been deleted from some of his social media channels suggests very much that it was a token gesture that he thought he had to do because that's what the PRs told him to do. That doesn't show any remorse to me. So, yeah, he deserves to... No one is, as Val says, no one is saying he needs to to lose his job, but he needs to spend a few races sitting at home and he needs to be doing some community service around, uh, the you know, sort of opening his eyes to the dangers of how stupid his actions were. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was it's top of my list is the community service thing or it's back of the grid or race miss races missed, sorry. Um you rather fancy that any statement will come out in a couple of days before the British Grand Prix, which is next up. Um But fits. that's that's too late, Toby. This yeah, needed but that's to be the acted way they on work. Right I, I agree, Simon, but that's the way they work. That's the way they the the, the system works. Uh is is our experience, not me just us um they they the summer holiday thing really is a summer holiday um uh i i i hope that something is said whatever it may be from somebody in, in officialdom whether or not it's ducati or fam but they're not good at reacting uh it might be a while is my experience and, and just to point out though this isn't summer holidays for ducati or for volkswagen group uh, true, yeah. It might be for the race team, but it's not for... Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, something's got to shake out. Um, uh, Beverly also asked about uh, Toprak from World Superbike uh, Yamaha. Should he go to MotoGP? I'm always a yes. I'm always that crossover. Question is still apparent in so many people's minds. Uh, for me, it always goes back to the to the Fogarty, the course of the Edwards. Uh, for, will it work if they jump? Will it work? Will it work? And I will always never be able to scratch that itch. So I would love to see him in Mudder GP. Trouble is, there might not be enough seats for him. The the way I see it is, um, it, it looks like uh, the example we've seen before, basically. If you hark back to like 2011, when we had two British riders in World Superbikes, both doing very well in the form of Jonathan Ray and Cal Crutchlow, there was an opportunity to go to MotoGP for both of them, regardless of, of what way that has been perhaps misdirected since there was an opportunity for both of them but it involved stepping down from factory superbike teams to satellite low-level MotoGP teams uh ray stayed where he was and didn't take the risk and won six world superbike championships crutchlow went to MotoGP, took the risk and ended up as a, a factory supported rider with three MotoGP wins to me crutchlow's three wins against the best in the world are worth as much as race six titles given the opposition he was up against but and and financially they're they're probably on equal terms but um you know it's whether or not you want to take that risk um for me top rack should take it there is an opportunity for him to go to MotoGP if he wants it um let's let's not you know the 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 only thing holding him back from getting a MotoGP right is this frankly dumb insistence on waiting for a factory yamaha ride you don't demand factory rides in MotoGP. it's not how it works mm, it's an interesting one uh and 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 
it's how hungry the uh, the organisers of the championship want him in as well because they, of course, uh, own both championships. So it's not as if they're stealing from somebody else or another promoter or such like. So that's another balance that Dorner have got to balance out. Uh, and, and, and and what Yamaha can look can offer him to stay at World Superbike. Round and round and round it goes. It, 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 it's a big political scenario. Okay, well, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Thank you, Beverly. Uh, Love the accent, and uh, thank you for that first for those first two questions. Uh, Beverly may well have been from California, but she lives in the UK. We've got another question from the UK right now. Hi there. I loved the interview with Remy Gardner. It was amazing to have such an insight into some of the behind-the-scenes workings of uh, the races and the riders. And it got me thinking about how all the team's equipment gets transported from circuit to circuit. Obviously, the calendar is packed with events across the globe. And I was wondering if you could shed some light on how the teams managed to get all the bikes and the gear, the technology uh, and all the rider creature comforts from one location to another, which is sometimes in a matter of mere days with like back to back race weeks. Um, it seems like it would be a logistical nightmare especially if some of the locations have better facilities than others. So anything you can tell me about how how those logistics happen, how that magic is created would be amazing. Thanks. Hey, Span, thank you for your question. Um, it's actually, so my my long, long background before I ever went to work in MotoGP, all my family are truck drivers. So it's something that I've actually always had a bit of an interest in keeping an eye on. Um there, there are two different ways that we travel. There are the the European races and there are the flyaways, the overseas races. Um, there's more and more of them these days. And they're all done by air freight. Uh, all of the teams have enough sort of giant equipment crates that they can fly everything they need around. I think it takes something like four 747s to carry the 400 tonnes of air freight that we have. Um, to every round that covers all of the team's uh, sort of bare bones equipment, their bikes, all of the TV stuff that Dorna have to carry, everything like that. Um, we have a, a partnership with Qatar Airways, which looks after a lot of that. Uh, but then in Europe, everything's done by road. I think the last time I, I checked this for a feature, there was 287 trucks in the MotoGP paddock, which is... Uh, so a, a factory team will have three trucks or four trucks just for carrying things for their workshop spaces, the engineers, conference rooms, all of that. Um, the riders will have hospital or motorhomes that are mainly these days articulated trucks as well. There are all the hospitality units which travel from race to race. There are Dorna offices which are collapsible. There's a t whole TV set that moves from round to round. Uh, the guys that look after that are the hardest working people in the paddock, uh, without a doubt. We we were talking in uh, in the Netherlands at the last race actually to some of the guys from the Aprilia hospitality. They turned up at the Saxon Ring on the Tuesday, built up the hospitality unit, worked all weekend serving drinks and food and everything in the unit. Started work on Sunday as soon as the MotoGP race finished. Worked overnight to break it down. Got a few hours sleep. Drove across Europe. 
to uh, uh, to the Netherlands and then started work again first thing on Tuesday morning to get it all built again to do another full weekend. They do not stop. It's crazy how much those guys work. So yeah, it's um, it's a huge, huge... We could do a full episode just on the logistics of how the, the paddock works. Um, and it's one of the main jobs of ERTA, the International Race Teams Association. They're kind of the, the logistics masters of it all. They're the people that organize the trucks, make sure that, you know, even uh, there will be someone from Erta at the race weekend before the current weekend, laying out where everyone's going to park, laying out the order in which all the trucks enter the paddock. It's a, it's an operation and a half to put it all together. Yeah, it's the world's biggest jigsaw puzzle, isn't it? Because they have to know that the Yamaha truck is this dis- is this big and the Honda truck is this big and it therefore will fit in that space in the paddock and not. And as you say, the guys are there the Saturday before the Grand Prix that's on the Sunday, which is why back-to-back weekends are difficult. And a lot of the hospitality, some of the hospitality structures that are difficult and long-winded to build, they can't do back-to-back races. So they have a lesser... Uh, hospitality in the meantime that leapfrogs lily pad to lily pad and such like uh, in the garage there's a lot of flight cases for the flyway races so the boards the backboards the toolkits they'll be all on on dollies roller wheels and then you can pack them in a certain way uh, and, and, and they're safely they're all made to spec uh, huge money involved in 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 traveling in in transportation with the with the freight and such like so when you're part of a team it's not you know oh well i'll just put my team kit in there because that's another kilo and a kilo is another x euros per flight so it's uh it's quite a balance for everybody and the cost is easy to run away with the the costs have gone through the roof this year with the the war in ukraine um, among other things, but uh, someone someone sent me the prices that the teams were paying uh, a few months ago, and for one of the legs this year, I think that the, actually the one that went so horribly wrong from uh, Argentina or from Indonesia to Argentina, the teams you think Ryanair are bad, the teams are paying twenty eight euros a kilo for their freight, and like I said, there's four hundred tons of it. Twenty eight euros a kilo. A kilo is a standard bag of sugar yeah <clears throat> so yes it does it does uh, tot up and that's why some teams the tool trays uh, that the, they have under the bike so they take a nut off a bolt the whatever off the caliper and then they all collect in a in a tray and some teams have invested in carbon fiber tool trays oh that's expensive that's a bit luxurious that's a bit over the top no not when compared with a steel one stainless steel it's the same for a lot of the, the backboards in the garage and stuff like that now, too. They're all carbon fibre because they save an air freight. Save an air freight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, there is there is an article there. There is a, not an article. There is a podcast in there. Maybe we need to get a couple of logistics guys in. That'll be uh, that'll be an interest, interesting one. So, uh, yeah, good one, good one. Thank you for that. Meanwhile, let's have a question about riding styles. Hi, it's Sebastian from Belgium. Um, I love your podcast. It's really great, in particular, that you take questions from the audience. So here's mine. Um, I, I wanted to understand a little, a little bit better uh, the riding style's uh, characteristics. 
Um, like for example, um, f we we all know that Fabio Quartararo uh, is doing something with the Yamaha that the other riders cannot do, like uh, the Vizioso, for example, uh, because there is a huge gap. Uh, but what exactly does that mean? Uh, what does Fabio Quartararo do on his bike that the others just cannot imitate? Is it positioning his body differently? Is it braking differently? Is it using the tires somehow differently? Is it setting up the bike? Is it the, it's the same bike but with different uh, settings? Uh, what exactly is happening there? Thank you very much. Thank you for the question, Sebastian. That's uh, good to hear we have listeners in Belgium. Um, so it, it seems like what Fabio can do on the bike compared to what the others are doing all relies around how he stops the bike. Uh, the The secret of riding Yamaha fast is corner speed. That That's always been the case. It's always been a bike because of the inline four engine that isn't as fast as the, the V4s. It's always been about carrying the speed through corners. Um, but it seems like he can almost make the bike stop like a V4, very, very aggressive in the brakes, and then still find a way to keep the corner speed through the corner. Um, that's what we've heard Andrea De Vizioso in particular trying to replicate all year and feel spectacularly to do. Um, and it, it, it's difficult to pin it to how Fabio rides the bike, I think. You know, from what we see as, as an external sort of looking on, it's just, it's it's something he can do. Um, I think part of it might be because of his... So so we see different riders come into the championship and they change the championship. They change how everyone rides. And I don't necessarily think that Fabio is one of those people, but Mark Marquez was. He was that kind of generational figure who, who changed how you ride a bike in terms of not necessarily the aggressiveness with which he rides, but certainly the way that he carries lean angle. And that's something that Fabio does because it's what he's always done. Um, and the people that are struggling are perhaps the ones that are being forced to adopt to that style a little bit. Um, Franco Morbidelli is struggling this year in the Yamaha. He has always been someone that has been super, super good at corner speed. He's so smooth. Um, I always remember his very first media debrief with us at the Valencia test, the first year he ever rode a Yamaha after a year in Honda. And he was just like, I think the, the words he, he described the bike as like butter. It's smooth like butter because it suited his riding style so well. But it seems with the current bike and the, the current rivals, you need to also have a little bit of old school aggressiveness. And Fabio can mix those two better than anyone else at the minute. That seems to be the key, and that's why he's leading the championship by 21 points at the moment, even though he made that slightly silly mistake by his own admission in Holland last time out. Right then, Simon, let's go a bit closer to your home, shall we? Hi guys, Sean here from Donegal. I'm really enjoying the podcast as I'm finding it to be the perfect entry point into MotoGP. I also really love the race's other content uh, as I find it to be the best motorsport content out there today. Part of my question for yourselves is, Bring Back V10s is, is a really interesting ex exploration of a particular era of Formula 1 history full of characters and crooks and politics and intrigue. If you hit the time, space and reality, do you think there's a comparable period of MotoGP history that would be worth exploring? 
I love the 990 era. It was absolutely up my street, Sean. Uh, as for uh, stories, well, there's always going to be stories, whether or not you go back to uh, to when the championship started in the uh, in the, the late 40s all the way through to today. Um, you're always going to get winners. You're going to get losers. You're always going to get crooks. Uh, that's uh, put a smile on a few of our faces when we heard that one. Um, yeah, we've got a bit of an idea to uh, have a, a retro podcast, a retro Moto GP podcast. So please do send your questions in podcasts at the dash race.com on the email. And I look forward to uh, to picking up some of those questions. So uh, do send them in, Sean. Um, 990s, 800s, but for me, 990s. I went to every single race but one over the five-year 990 period. So, uh, yeah, let us know what you want to know. This this might might get me sacked by our, by our editor, but I... Yeah, I don't really think the V10 era of Formula One was so like special compared to the others. As I just think the podcast is what it is because that's when the guys grew up. And that's where m- much of the media that they have, like that was already when the Formula One was really exploding into what it, what it became today rather than what it was before that. So the, there's more resources available, more media, more, more coverage, more angles to look at. I'm sure. If you take 1960s Formula One or 1970s or whatever, there's there's a lot of really great stories there. It's just the, the the history of that championship and the history of this championship. They're absolutely chock full with amazing stuff. Now, as I've discovered it when I looked back into 500 CCs, which I knew relatively little about just you know three or four four years ago, every sort of new discovery about the the wacky stuff that went on during that era is. It's wonderful. But as far as the equivalent of E10s, yeah, so, you know, it's the start of the MotoGP era, basically. That's the one where you're going to find the most coverage and the most various viewpoints and storylines and the most guests who are still around to tell the stories. Yeah, I, I don't have anything to add to what you two guys have already said. I just wanted to say hello to Sean because I'm sitting in my living room in the banks of the river foil looking into Donegal. <laughs> I was going to ask you, is his accent fitting? <laughs> okay, so uh, very close. Uh, Simon's off fishing later. Okay, next question. Hey, guys, this is Ryan Cantwell from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I have a question about the Global MotoGP Fan Survey. I've been a fan of the sport for decades, and this is the first time I remember seeing anything like this coming from Dorna. My questions are are this. Is this the first time Dorna is doing anything on this scale, like a global fan survey uh, from your experience? And do you think it's going to result in positive change from Dorna? Knowing the culture um, within that organization like you do, are they going to take our responses to heart? Thanks, guys. I really love the podcast. I'm a big, big fan and appreciate you taking our questions. Thank you. Hi, Ryan from Pittsburgh. Uh, I want to say go Steelers or go Penguins, but I don't really like either of those teams too much. Penguins are okay. Uh, anyway, in terms of your in terms of your question, so the the survey is organized by the Motorsport Network, which is a, a former parish of mine, and it's also done surveys for F1, I think twice, if I'm not mistaken, and definitely once for IndyCar. So it's just, you know, it's just a thing that the network does for championships. So it's in that sense, it's not too surprising. 
uh, honestly, I haven't had the time to to take it. And seeing your question, I tried to go in, but apparently it's already closed. Um, it'll all just depend on on how how seriously they take the results and how how much of it is just to gather some more general fan sentiment and how much of it is to gather specific implementations that are maybe being considered. Um, and it's it's hard to say in terms of the F1 survey and the IndyCar survey whether those have like changed the sport all that much. I think the F1 survey, maybe there were some results that were being cited fairly often, but it's just it's, it's hard to say. It's really hard to say until, first of all, we see, we see the results because ultimately every desire of the fans, you always have to take into account of how practical the things are. Yeah, the, there's a difference between doing a survey and implementing a survey. Um, and I can't help but feel like Dorn are doing a fan survey because F1 have done a fan survey uh, based on a lot of the questions in the fan survey, which are just asking, should we do this thing that F1 has done? Um, it's all in the implementation of it. So let's let's see what happens next. Um, but I, I'm not holding out that it's going to make a huge difference to anything that we do. Yeah, It's a fine line, isn't it? Because if you ask, 100,000 people, you will get 100,000 different answers. It's very rare that everybody is all aligned to the next person stood alongside them. That's the difficult thing when you then read the results of a survey. Uh, if you're strong enough from to lead a championship or a business or whatever it may be that is asking the survey then, you know, lead from the front and be positive and go in the right direction is also part of it. Uh, be careful too much about the tail wagging the dog because there are some answers that then won't get implemented and it'll rub people up the wrong way and then it all starts to spread out. But uh, it's a very, very, very fine line. It's also worth noting that, that only a part of building the sport and improving the sport comes from asking the people who already watch the sport. You also need to be asking the people who don't watch it quite and 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 wasn't it with the top gear best car survey that it would always be some obscure kind of everyday run-of-the-mill car because they were the people who had time to fill the survey in <laughs> yes it, it, it is a it, it, little bit different nowadays with the advent of digital technology and mobile phones and pads and such like but i think you might see where we are coming from let's see how that one shakes out ryan it takes a while to do the survey it's not a quick thing okay. it's a big well, old survey it. It's a big old bus. Okay, let's uh, let's take uh, let's take a while and see how that one shakes out. Thanks, Ryan. Next up, we are coming back to the UK. Hi, guys. My name is Phil, uh, calling from uh, sunny North Wales. Uh, my question really is about um, what I see is the kind of devaluing of the uh, lower classes in MotoGP uh, in the past. These were seen more as legitimate world titles in their own right, whereas nowadays it feels like the biggest prize from winning Moto3 or Moto2 is a better ride in the next category up. Um, you look at someone like Max Biaggi winning four 250 titles in a row, that just wouldn't happen these days in the intermediate class. That rider would be shipped out to MotoGP before they got to that kind of mark. Um, and I just think it kind of devalues those classes a bit. Um and it's to the detriment of some riders. Um, I think some riders are more naturally suited to smaller bikes. You think of someone like Danny Pedroza and how many world titles he could have won had um, 
his career stayed in 250 slash Moto2. Um, and you liken it to boxing or MMA where people are in a weight category that best suits their body type. And maybe that's something that we, we lose a little bit in uh, motorcycle racing. So I just would like to know what your thoughts are on it, really. Um, one last point I would add is um, the kind of bottleneck, and especially now we're seeing it in MotoGP with uh, Suzuki leaving, how few riders are and how many um, very good riders' careers are being affected by um, the way that these things have gone. So, yeah, just uh, like to know what you think and keep up the great work. Really love the pod. Cheers. Uh, thanks, Phil. Yeah, uh, good memories there. Max Biaggi winning four consecutive 250cc titles, three on Aprilia, one on Honda. He finished that in 97. Yeah, y you make me realise that the god that he was and how high he was held up by people by continuing to win those uh, 250 championships, it may well have dwindled a little, or is that just me uh is that just rose tinted spectacles but you're absolutely right it is a, a thing if you win moto three you can get that step into two if you win moto two you can get that step into moto gp biagi eventually did it won his first 500 cc race nearly won the title that year so there are those good people who are that flipping good they can win on anything pedroza you're absolutely right he might have won his fourth ever motor gp race but arguably he may well have won more championships if he stayed in 250 and he won his first 250 race as well in south africa 04 so mm, um regarding bottleneck in motor gp you're absolutely right not enough seats at the moment in motor gp but uh, val what's your take on on the on the on the value of the uh, of the middle class yeah it's a it's a it's a tough question and uh, somebody who doesn't watch boxing or mma doesn't really come to mind very often but that is that is a very interesting comparison what i would say is for me as somebody who's you know with an open wheel formula background i remember it was quite the culture shock to see tito rabat and joanne zarco not graduate to moto gp after winning the moto 2 title and just stick around in moto 2 like Formula 2, I think, explicitly forbids that. So, you know, it's it's such a different culture in that sense. And clearly, Moto2 and Moto3 are moving towards more of that sort of situation where it's a talent breeding ground rather than a, a career place. And I, I don't really know how I feel about that because on the one hand, it just makes inherent sense to me. I think Moto3 and Moto2 formats and the, the type of racing, like I, I obviously the bikes are different and that makes for different types of racing but the like the format itself the format of the weekend the format of the race it is so similar to MotoGP to where it, also being on the same weekend it, it makes sense to me that there can only be one main prize that there can only be one most prestigious thing that everybody dreams of and everything else is a step to that like sort of comparing to that let's say Moto E is very obviously different because of the format it has so it's sort of easier to separate in your head whereas even, even the numbering, you know, Moto2, Moto3, Moto GP, Moto1. Uh, so for me, it's natural, but I, I do appreciate the point. And because rider sizes do play such a big part, maybe there's something to that. Maybe there's something to where riders who are not maybe optimally sized for the premier class deserve a career opportunity somewhere else. But again, just even look at World Superbikes, which is its own thing, but we've already talked in this podcast about a World Superbike champion going to MotoGP because that's, if you're successful there, that's a greener pasture. I, I think there's an issue here with sort of tradition and history meeting 
what is perceived to be the modern requirements of a sport. Um, traditionally, there wasn't a Moto 2 and Moto 3. There was a 125, a 250, a 350, a 500, an 80, a 50, etc., etc., etc. They were equal-weighted championships. Um, and we don't consider champions of the past who won multiple championships in lesser classes uh, to be lesser champions, you know. Um, I don't think anyone would call Angel Nieto uh, you know, a wannabe or a part-time champion because he only won in the smaller classes, despite the you know the fact that that the five hundred was still the class even then. Um, so yeah, I, I think it has become a bit of a modern invention that everything is the road to MotoGP and MotoGP is the be-all and end-all. And out of the the various rules across all of our championships that I find to be bewildering on occasion the absolute dumbest is the fact that moto 3 has an age restriction um because this year we're going to see probably two or three real good moto 3 riders kicked out of grand prix racing because they can't stay in moto 3 any longer because they're 28 years old thinking of people like john mcphee and uh, andrea Mino who are knocking on that door um, but there's not room for them in Moto2 because Moto2 doesn't have an age limit and you've got people like Simone Corsi who's been in Moto2 Moto for 15 years. Um, yeah, so it, it's something that the championship needs to reconcile with itself, I think. Is the point of Moto2 and Moto3 all to move to MotoGP? In which case, do they deserve the same format, the same timing, the same precedence in the weekend? Or are the equal championships in their own right, in which case people should be allowed to stay in them for as long as they're competitive? Mm-hmm. Yeah, t- times they do a change because in Spain, when they'd had the, uh, the, the the 80, the 125, the 250 race, all the Spaniards went home. They didn't bother watching yeah. the 500 race because it took till 1992 for a Spaniard to win a 500 race and 1999 for somebody to win a 500cc championship from Spain. So yeah, times they do a change. Okie dokie. Talking about younger riders, let's catch up with our next question. Hey, it's Nick from Minnesota, USA. Um, with Dorna paying for people's rides, um, Red Bull rookies, all the different talent cups out there, is that improving the, the talent pool at all? And what are the chances that we'll see a non-Italian, non-Spanish, non-Fabio Quattraro class champion in any of the classes in like the next 10 years? Love the pod. Thanks. So to, to start with the second question, I mean, obviously we had Remy Gardner as the Australian champion of Moto2 last year, but I think what you mean is when we'll see somebody who's not brought in through that traditional Spanish or Italian system. Remy obviously came through Sev uh, Moto3 and speaks Spanish very well, as we've seen in some MotoGP videos. Um, it's, a, it's a good question that I'm naturally reluctant to really like give a definitive answer to because that scheme still feels really new and you have to remember where it is on the ladder so those talent cups to my understanding honestly they effectively feed into either the the spanish championship that was sev moto 3 and is now is it junior gp or something like that and don't don't remember these or to red bull rookies cup so it's if you if you take it in formula terms, it's like it's Formula Four, but even like a bit lower. It's almost the final step of karting, if that makes any sense. Um, but it's also true that some of those championships have been around for long enough to where 
maybe they should have already yielded some MotoGP result, but maybe they have. Let's say like Ayogura made his way through the Asia Talent Cup. We expect him to be in MotoGP next year. Asia Talent Cup has also produced uh, several good Moto2 and Moto3 riders. And I mean, that's that's not nothing. Um, it's the, I'm not sure if that's the longest running one, but it's definitely like probably the most, the one with the most pedigree. Then we have the European Talent Cup, which we don't like, that's that's not really up for discussion here. It's clearly a good championship, but it's it's the same countries that you've been talking about. And then we have the the British Talent Cup, which has produced a really good British superbike rider. And I think whoever the next British MotoGP rider is, is probably coming through there. It, um, the, the next British MotoGP rider will be Scott Ogden, who came through. Yeah, see, there you go. And Scott Ogden is the is a British Talent Cup champion, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. Uh, we have the Northern Talent Cup, which is just it's way too early for that one to know. And unfortunately, its most recent champion uh, was tragically lost at the start of this year uh, in a freak accident, if I if I'm not mistaken. So it's just too early because he was 16, and that's how young those those boys are. We just we don't know yet what what they can do in the in the higher classes. And you know that's a, that's that's basically the the outline of the scenario. It's 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 a, it's a bit too early to know, but. I, I certainly I appreciate the effort, and I you know it's it's good that they're trying. I think it's 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 worthwhile. Yeah, the Zarcos of this world came through the Red Bull rookies, and 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 he came out as a two time mother two world champion just as a as a pluck out of the uh, out of that pot. Uh, I, 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 it's an interesting take, Val, that you you took it as somebody who might be MotoGP world champion who's not from the European mold. Um, I suppose we have to go back to Nicky Hayden. He debuted in 03, did 03, 04, 05, 06, won the championship in 06, took him four years. Uh, he he came from a domestic superbike championship, which was very good, just as BSB is now, just as a, just as Mother America is now as well. And it, it, it worked. It worked. Can it happen again? Of course it will. Do we know how it's going to happen? No, we don't. Yeah, I, th- I think as far as like as far if you take somebody who's not done the traditional Moto three, Moto two path, I think it's going to be a long, long while until one of those people is MotoGP champion, just because the the existing Moto three, Moto two, Spaniard dominated, Italo dominated, whatever. Not even talking about nationalities. There's just a lot of absurd freaks in there already, and they're you know, and they're in this paddock for their entire lifetime. It's really hard to break into that. I mean, some people have done it reasonably successfully, but a MotoGP title, you have to do it really successfully. Okay, so uh, thanks, Nick. Uh, We're going to go a little bit further east coast now. Hi, this is Marie calling in from the state of Rhode Island in the United States. I'm a huge fan of MotoGP, um, of anything that goes fast on wheels, really. And it's my dream to become a MotoGP engineer once I'm out of high school. So my question is, how do engineers in the paddock get where they are? Um, what kind of education do they get? How do they enter the world of motorsport? And how do they land jobs with top-level teams? Thank you for listening and for all that you do on this podcast. Hey, Marie. Uh, thank you for your question. Um, I will take this one because, well, the easiest way I can tell you um, is to give you some examples. Because uh, when I joined MotoGP in 2016, uh, I kind of graduated with with two others, two friends of mine, who are both, uh, well, one's an engineer and one's a mechanic. So um, so one of those guys, um, 
I've known for years and years and years. He started out as a, a mechanic in the support classes for British superbikes, helping out some friends. Uh, he worked from there to sort of worked his way up through the ranks, which is the only way to do it as a as a mechanic to become a, a British superbike mechanic. He went from there to a Moto3 team and has been in Grand Prix racing since. He's in Moto2 now. So it's all about connections and sort of knowing what you're doing and or knowing who you're working with um, and building your your CV and building your experience and building your reputation. From a a tech, more technical point of view as an engineer, it's perhaps a little bit easier because there are now quite a few university programs that you can work through that that qualify you. Uh, And another friend of mine, Actually, while I was in British Superbikes, was working with a, a British Superbike team as their chassis technician. But what he was doing was his his uh, uh, his thesis for his university degree. So he was doing it as, as on-site practical training. And when we left British Superbikes, he graduated from university and he went to initially to Suzuki as one of the backroom data crunching staff uh, and has worked his way up through the ranks and is now quite a senior guy at KTM as a result of that. So there are multiple ways in. They all pretty much rely on getting your name out there and getting to know people, which is the you know the way I tell anyone that wants to work in MotoGP in any walk that that's the way to do it. But the fact that there are now motorsport college programs that you can work through that give you a huge amount of experience that perhaps wasn't you know there or needed actually a few years ago because... You know, there was no one 20 years ago coming into MotoGP having just left a degree in aerodynamics because we didn't care that much about aerodynamics. So if you want to come and work in MotoGP, concentrate on your engineering subjects, concentrate on uh, finding yourself a college program that will give you some experience in those fields and then start applying for jobs and good luck. Yeah, we've all done the uh, the jobs for no money or petrol money that's what you've got to do uh no one's going to walk into a hugely paid job straight out of uh, the, the proverbial school or college you've got to literally start at the bottom and as you say get your uh, get your name out there go along be there um <clears throat> i was talking to lena gade the other day uh from an indian family she did some uh she did some data logging engineering stuff at the weekend for a team car stuff here in the uk and uh, she won le mans three times in charge of a car at audi uh and she's still gutted that she didn't win the fourth very competitive very knowledgeable very professional and it all worked out there's there's everybody's got a story everybody's got a story uh one day another podcast we can all maybe say ours val and marie uh make sure to tell us how you get on and how that goes for you and if you do make it to moto gp uh give us a ton of rumors and scoops and inside info <laughs> this is the long game for for how we get information yeah. building sources yeah yeah uh, actually val that's the the salient point of this little uh question and answer session uh, let us know how you get on marie uh get yourself to some moto america races get yourself over to europe uh let's see how you get on meanwhile hey guys this is jonathan from america in virginia always love listening to you even if you're just some desk jockey from russia so 
Thanks to MotoGP Unlimited, we witnessed some of the fallout from Vinales leaving Yamaha and factory Yamaha cannibalizing their then Patronus satellite Yamaha for a rider to fill the gap left behind. This was a contributing factor to the divorce between Patronus and the satellite team. It seems that Yamaha has put this satellite team in a difficult position time and time again, though. Swapping out Cordero and Rossi, taking more Bedelli when Vinales left, staffing the current roster with Davi and Darren Bender. Seems to me that the redheaded stepchild has had enough and is seeing if the grass is really greener on the other side. How much of this do you believe fed into that decision to switch manufacturers, and what does their switch to Aprilia say about Yamaha in general and their ability to make strategic decisions to remain strong and competitive in MotoGP? Oh, and Cordero can't be your comp-out answer either because they nearly lost him due to how they managed their program anyways, and I am a huge Cordero fan. Side note, I do think that it's ironic that they lost their satellite team to the same manufacturer that they lost a factory rider to about a year ago. No? Hey, Jonathan. It's the, uh, the desk jockey. Um, from, from my understanding, if you remember MotoGP Unlimited, the, the part of Patronus Yamaha that was most concerned, if you remember those meetings about losing Morbidelli, was not necessarily Razlan Rosali, who I think has always come into this project with the mindset of, we're here to develop young riders for Yamaha, and then they fly the coupe and we take on more young riders. That's felt, that's always been sort of the public facing line. So I don't think they could have been, or at least he, I don't think he could have been too annoyed about losing Frankie because that was, that's, the long game of a MotoGP satellite team. And I think everybody more or less understands that. I think the more the more salient points were the level of cooperation in the financial terms from from what we've heard. That that sounded to be the whole the whole situation. I wouldn't blame Yamaha of messing that up, Simon. I mean you probably know the inside of that team more than us two. Um I don't think Yamaha messed all that up. Yeah, I think that was a non-happy situation that actually ended in the best possible way for everyone involved um, in the end. Yeah, and regarding the fact that Vinales has gone to Aprilia, Jonathan, I think that's just a coincidence. That's just that's just life. And it's a funny one, though. Are, uh, it, it, it is, it, it, and, 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 Apr- and Aprilia are going with RNF, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it's, a, it's just th- there was a vacuum there in terms of like the extra power in MotoGP, Aprilia wasn't really one to reckon with, and now it is, and it's picking off the parts that it can. And it it happened that Yamaha, in its state of, I think, forever dysfunction, if that makes sense, even when they're winning titles, it feels like there's something going on always. Mm, Disagree with that, yeah. I don't think they're dysfunctional. Well, dysfunction may be harsh, but they're like, their 2015 title was won in you know what circumstances. Yeah, then yeah. there were the years of unhappiness. Then the 21 title was followed by the rider being really concerned about the level of the bike and openly flirting with other teams. That's not dysfunction, I guess, but it's not. That's always happened. That's always yeah, happened as well. But you know, that, that, yeah, yeah. There was definitely dysfunction with the Vinales bit, and there was some dysfunction between Yamaha and RNF and Aprilia as the new emergent power was in perfect position to capitalize on those. Without going too much off topic, uh, why have Yamaha got 
only two bikes next year and not a satellite team. Has there been a definitive answer? Yeah, yeah, two bikes and nobody else to, there's no teams available to fit in and no satellite team room on the grid. I mean, they can't, they're not going to pry away VR46 for their Ducati contract. I don't, I don't know how much interest there would be from the other side anyway. So just no takers as it stands. So they're going to just go 2023 with two bikes and then look at who they can pry away, as far as I can tell. That's arguably a mistake that was made by Yamaha, but it wasn't a mistake made by the race team. Um, it was a mistake made by headquarters because corporate governance rules meant that they could only give a new entity like RNF a one-year deal. Um, and RNF found something better at the end of the one-year deal. And everyone else has multi-year deals that they can't get out of. So them's the breaks. Them's the breaks. Them's the breaks. Okay. I uh, hope that's answered your question, Jonathan. Next up. Hey guys, this is James from Daytona Beach. Simon, I had a question for you about your recent article on why ride height devices needed to be banned. In it, you proposed that in order to coax the engineers to go through with a ban, that they are instead allowed to work on active suspension. So I am curious what the actual difference is between a ride height device and active suspension on a technical level and in terms of the racing product. And I'm also curious why it hasn't been explored in the past. Anyways, keep up the great work. Hey, James. Uh, welcome from sunny Daytona Beach. Um, so active suspension, um, it's something that's never been explored in the past, I think, because the actual technology hasn't been good enough to use it in racing until recently. And then we've got to the point where now it's been banned in MotoGP, so it's not used there. But the, there are a few people experimenting with it in other classes of racing. Um Essentially, the, the rules say very specifically right now that suspension cannot be altered at all by electronic means, which is why we have these complicated, over-engineered ride height devices that use hydraulics and pneumatics to, to activate themselves, because you can't just stick a servo and an electric remote on it and do it that way. Um, being able to do it electronically offers so much more controllability. Because it, it means that you can do all sorts of things with pressure levels and um, stiffnesses that, that you can't do with such a rudimentary system. So it would open up a huge amount more uh, avenues to explore. And it would also create actual tangible benefits to going on the road. Because while you might build a race suspension that allows you to make the bike stiffer through a certain corner... That also means that whenever you're riding your sports bike in town, you can push a button and make it softer so, or more nimble handling so that it's actually easier to ride in the road. So there's a huge benefit in it. Uh, there's a huge crossover in it. And I, I kind of threw that out as a bit of a, not hyperbole, but it was a, you know, throwing a, a bone to a dog is something that might make up for getting rid of ride height devices. But um, it, it's probably something that we actually need to explore more in a, in a feature over the next coming months. That's uh, one for Val to put in the list that never grows of features we should write. Uh, Formula One had active suspension through 91, 92, 93, and then it was banned at the end of 1993. Um, it was hugely clever, but hugely complicated as well. Having said that, 
that technology is now 30 years old. It kept the car at a specific height uh, uh, off the ground so the aerodynamics would work perfectly. It would arguably stop the poor poising that's going on at the moment in Formula 1 because of the way that that works not now but um it's clever stuff it's not new technology that's how it'd work on a motorcycle that's not for me to answer there's a lot of tech on motorcycles as simon says nowadays road bikes to soften the ride up stiffen the ride up do what you want to do um i don't think we need it necessarily in motor gp let's um let's see let's see anyway james thank you for that uh hope you enjoy daytona bike week um next up let's come back quickly to uh, to the uk hi this is ian in sunny surrey i hope you guys are all doing very well at the moment and thank you very much for keeping us entertained each week with your fantastic podcasts and insights into MotoGP. so now i've paid you all those compliments i now have two cheeky questions for you in return the first one is in regards to pedro acosta looking at moto 2 of course last year he was deemed as the next big thing winning in moto 3 and then taking the step up to moto 2 where he has got off to a good start i would say and obviously just recently secured himself a win but do you still see him as the next big thing everyone last year was touting him as the next marquez there was even people talking about him making a leapfrog straight to moto gp so do you still see him being the next big talent the next marquez for instance or do you think he might fade away like we saw with manuel poggiali or someone like that so yeah firstly do we still see a future for him in moto gp do you think he's going to be fast tracked up there or spend a few years in moto 2 still honing his craft and the second question is in regards to the future of moto gp for british riders uh, do you or where do you think the next british talent is going to come from for MotoGP, do you think we're going to see someone else step up to the big class pretty soon? And if we don't, how is that going to have an effect on BT Sport and their contract? Are they going to renew with Dorna if there's no British talent coming up? So, yeah, I'll leave those with you. Look forward to your replies. Again, thank you very much for the great podcasts. Look forward to hearing from you. Cheers. Cheers, Ian. Um, I will... Let's start with Pedro Acosta. Um Pedro is still the next big thing. I think everyone's still pretty sure that he's going to be probably a MotoGP world champion at some point in the not-too-distant future. Um, the, the crazy thing is that there was all this hype about his first year in Moto2 based on his first year in Moto3. But the one person that was dialing back all that hype was Pedro himself. He knew that it wasn't going to be this easy. You, you have to remember that he essentially came into Moto3 having already rode a Moto3 bike, just not in that championship. So he knew the bike. He always knew that it was going to be a two-year learning curve in Moto2. In Moto he was quite adamant that, you know, even Mark Marquez did two years in Moto2. and He was prepared to do the same. I think we'll, we'll come back from the summer break. We'll see him a more consistent race winner in the second half of the year. And then next year we'll see him fighting for the title and, and announcing a MotoGP move middle of the season if things continue in this tra trajectory. But I can't see any reason why they won't. Uh, the next British talent to arrive in MotoGP has already, already arrived in uh, Moto3. It's Scott Ogden, um, like we touched on earlier in the podcast. Scott is doing things that, really no other British rookie has done in Moto3 
in uh, in my time watching the series. He again will be a I think will be a, a semi consistent race winner this time next year. And he's already you already look at Scott and think you're a bit big for a Moto three bike. So he's got he's got what it you know, all of the characteristics, physical talent, everything. He'll be in a Moto two bike not too long in the future and he'll be in Moto G P after that. Just in time actually for the BT Sport deal to run out at the end of twenty twenty four. Okay, uh thank you, Ian. Okay, I think this is going to be an answer for one of you two rather than me. Hi guys, my name's Ian. I'm from Melbourne, Australia. I perhaps got into MotoGP, an unusual route through the MotoGP video game. Um, I was just wondering if any of the riders play the um, MotoGP 22 video game, like some of the Formula One drivers play the Formula One game. And whether the game is used for um, educational purposes of learning track layouts at all. Um, thank you. Hi, Ian. So I vaguely remember a couple of riders mentioning playing the game, but I think for the most part, it's doesn't really help for obvious reasons. Uh, even like with the F1 game, I don't think is a preferred method of preparing because every F1 team, basically every F1 team has its in-house simulator that it uses for an absurd amount of time. And obviously that's a lot more developed and honed towards preparing a driver for the track, also preparing the car, but that's another topic. Whereas obviously when it comes to MotoGP, when it comes to the game, you have a controller, you have a gamepad, and that you will be, I'm not just, let me drop the snark. That doesn't help. It doesn't help and it doesn't really, I mean, in terms of learning the track, I think most of them just prefer to do the traditional old track walk and that be there doesn't doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the game just we've not really you know you can always get a, a racing wheel but you can't get a, a racing bike controller unless you're some sort of super rich rich freak who can get it developed for them game's fine just you know needs rider transfers that's all yeah the um the, most guys use onboard laps to learn the circuit because it's done at the speed at which they're they're racing it so fair enough fair enough i uh I don't do the computer game thing, although some of the Sims are very good. Um, yeah, let's see. If I had one in my house, wouldn't get any work done. I know that for sure. Okay, uh, let's have a question about how Dorna cut up the cake, shall I say, up and down pit lane. Mr. Moody, Mr. Harunchi, and last but certainly not least, the most direct and controversial voice of any podcast program I listen to, Ms. Patterson. I uh, hope you're all doing well. My name is Francisco Morales. I uh, am a native Mexican living currently in San Antonio, Texas. I've uh, been listening to you guys' programs since last year and currently caught up. My question is as follows. With the fact that Ducati has the most machinery out on the grid and Suzuki leaving God knows when and the fact that Yamaha is losing its only satellite team. Do you guys believe that whether the FIM or Torna have any sway in the matter of telling teams what kind of machinery could they be running? Uh, again, this is only something that I thought recently due to what is changing next year. Who's going to be running what? Uh, or... Or could this probably 
possibly impossible by either FIM or Torna. And if that, if let's say they do say, uh, hey, I want certain teams to run this type of machinery to level up the playing field, would that be an overstep? Uh, again, uh, small thought, maybe a little bit of a dumb question. Uh, but yeah, uh, please, you guys keep up the good work. Uh, I really love the program. And honestly, I really wish Dorna, if you're listening, you guys are really messing up considering the fact that this could have been MotoGP Unlimited Season 2 in the works. You guys really are laying an opportunity to go with all the drama that's been going. You guys, please keep up the good work with the podcast. Have a good day. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right, uh, Francisco. What drama it would have been to have MotoGP Unlimited 2. Uh Maybe they'll drag something out of the back of the garages with what they film, but who knows? Let's see how that one shakes out. In the meantime, uh, can I jump in first? Did Dorna have a sway of who runs what? Well, absolutely. It is a political thing. It is a balance that uh, Carl- Carmelo Espeleta does of Dorna. He's been doing it for 30 years now. Uh, he, he's been doing motorsport all his life of, of who runs what. It is a balance. But as we've touched on already, sometimes it doesn't just quite work out for a, uh, a satellite Yamaha team for next year because of logistics and who's going to get the trucks and who's going to hire 44 people to go to every race and such like. But Dorna do try and balance things out. The only thing I've got to add is to Francisco from San Antonio, go Spurs. Not the London Spurs, never the San Antonio Spurs. Good team. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, uh, great to hear the accent as well, Francisco. Great to hear. Okay, a uh, couple more questions to go. Here's the next one. Hi, all. This is Ellie from Lincolnshire. Following the race at Assen and Quattraro's uncharacteristic mistake, does it mean that Zarco could potentially be a contender for the championship now he's only 58 points behind and we're at the midway of the season but is it a bridge too far for him to cross to be a true contender or is it literally just a sprint now to the end between Quattararo and Espagaro? Hi Ali uh bridge too far I think all of my co-hosts agree there and I'm you know I'm pretty pretty certain that we're now going to see a Johan Zarco 2022 title not because because I don't think like he's good enough or whatever, but I think he's just right now he's not fast enough. You you saw an Assen, the kind of weekend he had an Assen, the other title contenders do not. They never drop off that low. And Zarco's highest level is not as high as Fabio's and Alesha's, which is why Fabio and Alesha have won races this season and Zarco has not. I think even if he was level on points with Fabio right now, I would not, I would still think he's the third likeliest rider to win the title. But at 60 points back, I mean, let him prove me wrong, I guess, but I don't see it. Don't think it's I, possible. I still don't think that any satellite rider can win a championship. I stand by that argument. Simon can't see it's possible. Uh, it's. It's a long shot, Ellie. It's a very long shot, but I'm sure you'll be at Silverstone to uh, to wave the tricolor, will you? That'd be cool. That'd be cool. Yeah. It's a great fairy tale, though. <laughs> we're going to stick with that. We're going we're gonna to stick with a little bit of a fairy tale, just in case, just in case. Okay, talking about uh, British Grand Prix, we've got a question here again from the UK. 
Hi Toby, Simon and Valentin. This is uh, David here in the UK. Uh, great podcast. And thanks for all the uh, for all the insights that you give. It really is uh, really interesting. So thank you. Uh, my question is about Simon's recent article about Repsol thinking of leaving the paddock. And uh, while I accept the loss of a major sponsor is an issue and any concerns that they have where possible should be addressed. Is this more of a case where their current bike is not being the winner it was and there's and that they're um, star rider Marquez is injured. Um, this is a Spanish team with a Spanish star with a Spanish sponsor, and they sh- and they don't like losing. So arg- arguably, as well, they cause their own problem by a relying on one rider uh, and b letting him race a-, a week after a major accident uh, and injury. Um, I-, I guess the close racing we're all seeing today uh, and the rise of Aprilia as well. Uh, it's perhaps due to other teams uh, getting their development right and um, perhaps also to the rising talent that we're seeing that's, that's come through into MotoGP. Um, the article also talks about the, the technological developments that uh, the Repsol have complained about, uh, and there may be some, some, some points that they raise. However, um, you know, MotoGP is meant to be the pinnacle of, of, of not just of racing, but of, of development within motorcycles. Uh, and even my own bike, I got, I got a Ducati. It wouldn't have, you know, wouldn't have anti-lean ABS uh, traction control or different power maps or up and down quick shifter without that race development. Um, Dainese are, you know, accredited with producing fantastic race suits with with safety features, and they credit that development to MotoGP riders and, and other uh, riders in, in in that use their equipment. So it's all good in in that respect. But anyway, rambling question, but great to keep up, uh, keep keeping up the great work. And the podcast is fantastic to listen to. And, and finally, a shout out to Danilo Petrucci um, and his Dakar success. Um, back in my day, I raced in my last African Dakar in 2007 on a bike. And for, for a first time rider to win a stage like the, uh, uh, Danilo did um, was just incredible. The speeds the factory riders go at is, is something to be seen. So for him to get a result like he did was tremendous. But anyway, all, all, all the best to, you, to all three of you. Thanks again for the uh, great podcast. And uh, yeah, I'll keep listening. Cheers. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, David. It wasn't rambling at all. Um, and also, uh, I take my hat off to you to even attempt to enter a Dakar in Africa. And you've got some idea of what it's like. Uh, it was brilliant to see Danilo win a stage into Riyadh this year. But uh, but he did it and his name's on the... Uh, Names in the book. Uh, regarding your question about Repsol, let's just clarify. Repsol is the sponsor, and I think sometimes in the question you were talking about HRC, who actually run the team. If I could focus on Repsol first, um, they arrived into MotoGP as the sponsor of HRC back in 95, and they won the championship then five times on the trot. 95, 6, 7, 8, 9 with Mick and then Alex uh, Crivier. Then they won it twice with Valentino on the V5. Then they won it with Nicky Hayden in 06. They won it in 11 with Casey Stoner. Bit of a gap, that. And then, of course, the success that they have seen with Marc Marquez since 13. Um, if they're gonna, if they are thinking of leaving the paddock, then maybe they've had the time. Is it an environmental question? What other energies might they be looking into? Because there's a lot of other uh, oil companies that are looking into other energies to be deployed uh, for for the for the greater world. That's a, that's that kind of sponsorship thing parked to one side. Uh, are HRC going to leave the paddock? Is it going to snow tomorrow? <laughs> Not in my book. 
Uh, I, I, yeah, like Toby says, predicting what happens. <laughs> I've realized with the news of Suzuki that my ability to predict anything in MotoGP is a waste of time because you, you, you don't know what's going on in Japanese boardrooms or Spanish boardrooms for the matter. Um, but the Repsol rumors have been long standing. Um, and I all very much believe it when I see it at this point because we've heard that they're pulling out for about 10 years now. Anyone else go searching for Dakar 2007 results to, to find David? <laughs> I, I definitely have. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna share my results, but <laughs> hell yeah, <laughs> yeah. Fair play, fair play. Yeah, I um, mean, it's uh, it's another world. It's difficult now, but it was a lot harder then. Fair play to you, sir. Okay, from one David to another. Greetings, gentlemen. This is David from Texas. I would like your opinions on the MVPs, the most valuable people of the paddock. That is the crews. If each of you was building a team, who would be your first two crew member picks? Take turns picking one person at a time, and no crew member can be picked twice. Toby, no grid girls. Okay, well, let's just clarify, David. If we were all in the same room and there was one microphone, there would be physical violence to get to that microphone first so that somebody could nick somebody as the first <laughs> choice in their team. So we're going to have to flick at the proverbial virtual coin and see who comes down heads up. Uh, I'm going to cut this up. Uh, Simon, you go first for your first person of two. Uh, I would take... Juan Mir's crew chief, Frankie Carchetti, um, because he, for one, he's a vastly experienced crew chief. For two, he's not a crew chief who came up through the ranks as a mechanic, but one who came up through the ranks as a data engineer. And thirdly, because I know that him and the Suzuki crew do, let's say, a surprising amount of on-site engineering for someone who's a crew chief at a factory team. They build a lot of that bike because the resources at Hamamatsu are so small. Um, yeah, I, w I would absolutely have Frankie as my crew chief. Okay, so he's your first choice. We'll come back to you in a minute. Val, who's your first? I think the dry is rigged. We need to, we need to change <laughs> the dry. I need to go fast. Anyway, uh, I've thought a bit on this, and my choice is a boring one, Gigi Dolinia. Oh, I, I, I was going to steal him. Nah. <laughs> you know what? You can have him. No, let's, no, let's no, give, no, no, no. You've, you've give, said it. Okay. Gigi Delinia has done a, an amazing job turning the Ducati into what it is right now. Simple as. I mean, if, if, if they ban some of his gizmos, that's maybe potentially going to be a problem, but he'll, they'll figure something else out. Gigi Delinia. Okay. Okay. Right. He was going to be my second choice. Uh, I will go for Livio Supo to head the team. Uh, he's he's hard-nosed. Uh, I can have an argument with him, but he shoots from the hip and he tends to get things done, particularly with funding and sponsorship. And once you've got a bit of money, it doesn't half help. So he's my first choice. Right, Simon, who's your second? Uh, this is a kind of a Val idea because we had a quick chat about this beforehand and he threw this name into my ha into the, my head and I was like, yeah, of course. Uh, it's Dr. Tom McCain, um, Suzuki's test team crew chief, who is literally a doctor in making motorbikes go faster. Um, Tom essentially invented modern data logging and telemetry. Um, that's his skill set. He is an incredibly talented man at collecting information. Um, and if you were building a MotoGP bike from scratch, you would do exactly what Suzuki did and you would hire him to start the project off. All right. So 
my next pick, I have two options. And if, if Toby doesn't choose my second one after this, I will I will mention who it was. But I'm going to cheat a little bit and say Diego Gubellini, who is both clearly a very, very good crew chief and also might be quite important to poaching Fabio Quartararo away to my new team. <laughs> good one. Good one. Good bit of politics. Uh, I can't have Delinia, so I'm going to go for Santi Hernandez. Uh, who was the crew chief for Mark Marquez, but not because he's the crew chief to Mark Marquez, but because he's come through the suspension way of getting up to be a crew chief. He worked for Shoah forever, forever. He won the championship uh, with, with Crivier as the Shoah technician. And uh, yeah, um, or was it somebody a bit after? I think I stand corrected on them. Um, but anyway, he, he's been around forever. So I'm going to go for Livio Supo and Santi Hernandez as my two picks. Simon? The, the other name that I... I think we'd be uh, negligent if we didn't mention is Massimo Rivola, given the yeah, work that, that he's done to turn yeah. Aprilia into basically an actual functioning race team. Mm, yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Absolutely. You know, leading from the top and pulling a team together and a no blame yeah. culture. That's really, really positive. Okay. Uh, not a question, but Simon's got some nearly MotoGP news. <laughs> yeah. So um, my plan for the next week is to jump in my van and follow a neighbour of mine around Ireland for a few days, which isn't as creepy as it sounds. Um, sounds really it creepy. sounds really creepy, doesn't it? Now, one of my neighbours is a 63-year-old man called Joe Barr, who is currently, as we speak, attempting to beat the world record for the furthest distance travelled by bicycle in seven days, which is like 2,200 miles he has to beat. Um, but Joe... Actually, after a, a first career as a professional cyclist, then ended up in motorbike racing and ran a few teams for a few years, worked with a, a few riders as their physical and their coaches. Um, sort of British superbike fans of my generation will remember V-Trans Racing. Joe ran V-Trans. He was the team boss there. So um, he's doing it all to raise money for, for a kid's cancer charity in Northern Ireland after one of his kids contracted cancer a few years ago. So have a look at my Twitter Find the link to to what Joe's doing. Send him some virtual cheers. Go wave to him on the side of the road if you're in Ireland and chuck him a few quid. It's for a good cause. And warn him that he's being followed. Yeah, let him know. <laughs> now nah, he's wearing a tracking chip. It makes it too easy. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, yeah, you can Google Joe Bar J O E Bar Double R, isn't it, Simon? Yeah, yeah it is. Uh, check my check my Twitter. Um, I'll be mentioning him plenty on Twitter. Okay. Well, there we go. Thank you for your questions. Uh, we'd like another podcast that's a bit more retro. So get in those 990cc kind of 2003 questions or what it was like in 2007 with the advent of the 800cc era and send your voice messages in to podcasts at the-race.com. That's the email to send your messages to. In the meantime, thank you so much for tuning in and downloading our chat enjoy the sunshine wherever you are in the world we'll speak to you next week the athletic